Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Corbley, and the goal of this podcast is to go all around the world and see what countries are doing right and what countries are doing wrong in their political systems. Today, in the first of a two-part series on Australian politics, we have Milan Gandhi, founder and director of The Legal Forecast, and Patrick Foote, who is a lawyer for Gilbert and Tobin Law Practice. The first episode is an in-depth look at Australia's political and voting system, while the second episode will take a close look at Australia's immigration system and their economy at large. Good evening, men. G'day, Richard. Hi, Richard. Good to be here. Um, How are you, mate? Thank you for having us on. I'm doing brilliant, Milan. Now, first things first. Can you guys tell me who Australia's main political parties are and a little bit about their main ideas? Well, I can probably take the easy part of the question by, by giving you um, the names of the, the, the dominant parties at the moment. And then, and then maybe Patrick can, can help me out by giving you an idea of, of what they may stand for. Um, but obviously the, the current government is, is um, formed by the coalition between two, two parties, which represent the conservative parties being uh, the, the Liberal Party and the National Party. So um, as a coalition, they... Uh, are the incumbent government and the opposition party is the Labour Party which is sort of typically been understood to be the party most associated with the working class and more progressive politics uh, and then probably the third dominant party although it it's never actually been in government um, in terms of it's never uh, held the held a majority is the the party of the Greens um, which will obviously be a party that's known to you because I think it has sort of an international presence um, but yeah, Patrick, did you want to speak more to? Yeah, I guess I, I guess the the, the, the Labour movement um, being the the party that's currently not uh, uh, in control of the government as of today, um, kind of harks back to a lineage towards the union movement. Yeah, and, and, and typically you would find the the union movement and the workers' parties uh, typically have a uh, left of leaning um, kind of approach towards their politi- politics. Uh, and you would you typically associate them with with primarily being rooted in in, in causes um, aimed at you know in, increasing um, wages, uh, also kind of increasing the the government um, bureaucratic elements of the, of the nation, as well as also socio-economic policies in, in terms of increasing you know the the I guess governmental presence in you know. Economic. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Medicare and types. Uh, and then to, to to go back to the the Liberal Party, one would one would typically associate that with a with a more um, you know right leaning. Although one distinction I would make is probably a little less right leaning than 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 you know a, a U.S. style Republican Party. Yeah. But 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 you would you would typically associate them with you know kind of right policies in terms of um, tax decreases, you know, individual access to, to justice, individual access to um, kind of moving towards that um, less government presence in one's life, more, more, more rights to, to the ability to pursue their own interest without that kind of red tape element of bureaucratic free oversight, market. free market approach, you know, yeah. neoliberal type-esque um, policies and, and, and also you know, at the paramountcy of this is is the the idea that the individual is is kind of key in asserting one's presence in a political sphere, 
and, and, and to, to the extent that the individual's autonomy can be preserved, you would typically see policies being propagated by that Liberal Party. And then the Greens is, is kind of a, is, is, is a bit of a, a blur between the, between the two in the sense that one would typically associate, you know, by the name of it in itself, that they have a, a great presence in environmental issues. Uh, and typically that would have them leaning left of centre, but as well as kind of entertaining those uh, policies that also bring a social group context to, towards the political debate rather than individual, individual autonomy. Okay, yeah, I think that's a, that, that, that's a very good outline. And um, so just... just that's, some, a, that's a textbook outline. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, I would, one would caveat this by saying, happily be to be critiqued by anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, lads. We're not looking for 100% perfect answers. Just the main things the parties stand for. So tell me a little bit about some of Australia's fringe parties. Yeah, I, I guess one thing I would point about those periphery parties is is what we've seen in it probably since, you know, the opening up of the Australian economy since the 1990s is a lot of the periphery parties tend to lean further right than the Liberal Party. And you would typically see that associated with the party called uh, One Nation, Nation, uh, the Cory Bernardi Conservatives Party, and to a lesser extent, the Bob Catter Party. Um, But, uh, and you would typically associate them with kind of uh, right leanings um, and a more conservative approach to the way they politically analyze um, modern day issues in Australia. Okay, and yeah, just just on those parties, like what what sort of percentage of the vote would would those kind of harder right parties and the green parties be, be currently kind of be getting in terms of vote vote percentage? Just, just roughly, like I, I don't need the exact figures, but like did they get 10% or 20%? It's a, it's a really good question. And probably what I would say to, to this is the Australian political system as it's currently set up has a preferential system voting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the nuances of a preferential system voting is that it really distorts the of who's voting for who. Because what you will find in a, in a preferential voting system is one party gives their voting preferences in the event that they are not uh, the first preference party to another party. Yeah. And it really distorts how that party actually ranks in who voted for who. Because you could, you can, you can, one can vote in a sense that they can vote at one to ten between ten parties, and yeah. and, numer- and numerize them between order of ranking from one to ten in, in that order to sort the actual breakdown of who actually is voting for who. Um, so it's really hard to actually say in an Australian political sense the, the statistical analysis on that. But um, you know, as a punter in the C. You know, a forty-five to forty percent split between the major polit- political parties, and then the and the preference is streaming down to, to through that as well. Um, but it's really difficult to make that kind of call um, uh, in in this current climate with the preferential voting system. Very rarely, I mean, you'd be the party appointed in the governing capacity after an election win that by a margin of between five to to six six political seats out of say 150 plus seats in a, in a, in an election sense. So really you're talking of, and, and typically the margins within those seats are between two and 5% swings. So really 
you're seeing quite you're seeing quite an even distribution between the two major political parties. The heavy overlay of those um, kind of um, periphery parties uh, coming in, you know, in, in basically all representations in that third place. Right, and just just as a question of kind of thought about when you're saying this is say somebody really does feel like they want to vote for the greens um but that maybe the the seat is probably largely between the labor and conservative do you think the pr system kind of allows them to say vote for greens and then vote for labor after that is it say if they really dislike the liberals and then vice versa if if they want to vote for one of the harder right parties and then they want to vote for the liberals because they don't want labor to get in do you think that the PR system kind of gives people the freedom to maybe vote for the prefer- preferred party first while then maybe getting more tactical voting with the lower down the list. Yeah, well, absolutely. The, the, the system of it in itself gives, gives the Australian voter the opportunity to preference uh, the various political parties in whatever order they, they so choose. Uh, I, one can walk into a, a polling booth on election day and simply rank all the political parties that are contesting the, uh, the, the relevant seat in whatever order they so choose. So, so off the bat, the Australian voter has that opportunity to preference as they want. However, where the, where the murky water kind of sits in, in the Australian political sense is what happens to that Australian voter who doesn't rank the various um, political parties in the order they so choose and relies on the various political parties to preference the other political parties in whatever manner they so choose. And that's where a lot of the, it particularly, obviously in Australia, we have a House of Representatives, a two, a two-tier structure where we have a House of Representatives and a Senate. And where you really find this kind of nuance of preferential systems between kind of, I guess for a lack of a better word, back-end deal preferential systems is in this Senate where, where each state has 12 senators elected. And in that sense, um, there is a lot of preferential system kind of workings between the various political parties to determine who of those 12 senators, and generally you kind of have at a minimum 50 contested senators in one state, being in New South Wales or Queensland or Victoria, who of those 50 senators become 12 senators to make up the 12 elected senators for the state when the Senate kind of constitutes itself between all seven states. So it, that, that works itself out through the, the back backroom um, preferential. That's right, L- largely. I mean, obviously, as I mentioned before, it, one an Australian voter has the opportunity to preference those voters. Oh, I, they can you can walk into a voting group booth and and uh, and simply rank each individual senator, being you know John Doe, Bob Jane, etc. Et one, two, three, accordingly. But if you don't do that, or, or if you rank political parties, then you become subject to the preferential system that underpins that. And, and, and you have seen, in, 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 particularly in recent times and over the last few elections, very, very much periphery parties through inner workings of preferentials between the major parties, seeing periphery parties like the uh, Shooters and Fishers Party in Australia being elected to the Senate with a vote of, say, three to four percent of the overall electorate in say a new south wales or a queensland and, and typically you would see that at, and, and one would raise the question well how can someone who only constituted four percent of the um the vote 
actually become elected senator. Can I ask, um, so you said you have a Senate and a House of Representatives. Um, do, do they have like different duties or are they kind of the same power strengths? Uh, well, I, I guess I should preface this by saying the, the Australian political system operates um, what's known as a, a Westminster system. Yeah. Uh, and that's obviously rooted um, from our from our UK, United Kingdom, obviously, that, 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 that practices the, the Westminster system. So, um, obviously, has the Senate as, as the traditional oversight of legislative enactment and the House of Representatives, which obviously constitutes the, the governing body of, of, of the, the elect, electorate at that time, i.e., you know, the Liberal Party at present has the majority in the House of Representatives and of it in itself would constitute the government in any um, three-year period. Yeah. And I guess I'll, I'll throw to Millen in this, but, but typically you would see the House of Representatives kind of constitute that legislation and pass it up for critique from the Senate to then either pass back down to the House of Representatives for further review yeah. or alternatively pass that legislation of it in itself um, for for what's known as royal assent um, from our from our governor general, which traditionally has origins back to our um, UK origins, which would be representative of the uh, monarchy. Sorry, so a watermelon just fell over in my kitchen. <laughs> um, yeah, I think just so just just riveted by <laughs> by Patrick's political insights, watermelon has keeled over. <laughs> Um, sorry, but no, yeah. So, so yeah. There's, there's almost like you know, three, uh, two points of review in that sense. It's the Senate, and then ultimately the, the will is sent by the government. You know, depending on your questions, Richard, we can maybe get into that because I guess that that's an interest, interesting feature of our system. You know, being a Commonwealth nation with um with our, with with roots in in Britain, obviously, but um, maybe that's a separate topic. So, but, but just to what I would say from one of the nuances of the Australian system, I guess, and, and happily stand corrected by anyone from a UK constitutional background, I probably could shed better light on, on the on the UK Westminster system, is that one of the abilities of the Senate is is they too can enact legislation as of in itself. And and I guess in a, as a general oversight comment, the Senate probably has more of an active legislative review role than your traditional UK-style um, House of Lords, which predominantly kind of acts as a review um, tribunal for legislation passed in the House of Representatives, whereas in the Australian system, the Senate has more of an active role in, I guess, the body politic of the legislation, and so chooses to kind of enact their own legislation in certain circumstances. And certainly we've seen... Um, you know, Senator-enacted legislation of recent times, particularly as our Australian Senate becomes more diversified in, in kind of periphery parties as well as independents. So um, just, just... I'll leave the independent analysis. <laughs> just to interject there for, for a moment, um, are, is, are your Senate directly elected or are they kind of just appointed from the House of Representatives? We do elect our Senators, but, it, but there are a couple of caveats to that, like... Um, uh, Patrick was mentioning earlier when discussing the preferential votings. Um, the, the actual, the, the body, and I, and I think Patrick touched on this, um, there are a number of senators um, for each state, um, effectively. That's right. Okay. Um, which is, 
you know, that, 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 that's an important caveat to, to because every state is equal uh, in terms of its population. Um, so that, 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 that kind of is the uh, Senate a different democratic structure than the House of Representatives, if I can yeah. put it that way. But we as voters, we, we cast a vote for this. Um, One of the um, aspects of the Senate is, as opposed to the House of Representatives, the House of Representatives um, constitutes uh, a, a direct relationship with the population distribution within the Australian uh, populace, i.e. New South Wales having more populace than, than a Victoria or a Queensland would necessarily have a greater representation in the House of Representatives. Constitutionally speaking, the Senate being a drafted uh, in, in, our, in the Australian Constitution, drafted to protect the interest of each individual state at the time of federation, was deliberately so drafted to allow equal representation amongst the states, whereby each state has 12 senators elected. And, and you, you have a, a, a unique position where a states, for instance, of Tasmania in Australia, who is well underrepresented in terms of population to a New South Wales or a Victoria, yeah. has the same amount of presence in the Senate as New South Wales and Victoria being 12 senators. So they certainly have a legislative power in the Senate, which they absolutely do not occupy in the House of Representatives. And, and actually there's a very interesting piece of history if, any, if anyone is, um, uh, if anyone wants to to learn more about the Australian political system through um, some great storytelling, there is another podcast called The Eleventh, uh, which people should go and check out, which which talks to um, uh, one of our former prime ministers, Gough Whitlam, uh, basically being fired from his job, um, uh, and and the circumstances that arose in terms of. Um, or, or, you know, the, the, the role played by the, the Senate in, in forming the context for that uh, really important event in, in Australian political history. People should go check it out. But effectively, um, you know, the, the Senate has the power to, to block supply, right, to block certain bills. Yeah. Um, the historical origins of the Senate is, is, is rooted in that state power. And, it, and it's really important to remember within Australian political perspective is that historically... And this is gradually changing from a cultural perspective in Australia, but historically, the state is the ultimate source of power in, in, in the Australian right. Federation. So the state holds much more historically historical presence in, in, in the body politic than, than traditionally the Commonwealth of Australia being the, the representation of, yeah. of all states coming together. And it's really important to understand that the Senate actively pursues the interest of the state as a senator, as opposed to, you know, as the House of Representatives, one would be representing their electoral seat, um, which is a which is a populist distribution within the respective state that they're from, rather than kind of, and they wouldn't have any more power than than a particular um, House of Representative in, in any other state, but in the in the Senate, that those roles are kind of reversed, and and you and you, and you certainly you certainly have a situation where. You know, your vote in the Senate in Tasmania holds a lot more uh, populist distribution than your role in New South Wales would as a, as, a, as a voting Australian. It's actually, it's, it's, it's very similar to the US in terms of, so obviously all states get two senators, whereas then the, their House of Representatives is more based on population. So yeah, it's, I'm, I'm actually surprised about how 
how probably similar it is in terms of yeah, your, your government structure to America compared to, it seems quite different to, to it is from England. Yeah. Which it might be well, historically, it, historically, Richard, our, our Senate and the function of our Senate was actually modeled off the, the US. Okay. Yeah. I, have to, I didn't know that. That's interesting. But in terms of selecting uh, the prime minister, is that, is that done through the House of Representatives and the party which gains the most seat, or how is the, the Prime Minister selected? Yeah, I, I, I guess it, it, the way that the the Prime Minister, as opposed to, to I guess, a, a presidential election in the yeah. US would be probably the, the polar opposite of, of, yeah. of the Prime Minister electorship in, in Australia. But, but what, what uh, happens in a broad sense, and typically, obviously, before an election kind of commences, but the caucus at the time, uh, and the caucus is represented by the party membership or the party representatives in both the Senate and the House of Representatives, and they come together and caucus a vote for their, for their elected prime minister to run their election. Uh, but, but typically what you would see, and I guess it's been most really realistically kind of relived in, in, in our quite frequent kind of changes in prime ministership over the last, say, yeah. I guess decade or so, is the caucus would come together and, and kind of re-elect their prime minister without the involvement of the uh, Australian electorate. Uh, and that is due to the Westminster system allowing them to, to do so under the House rules of Parliament. Um, I probably would add to that uh, in the sense that the, the prime minister is, is, is more in the position of a, a representative of Australia and also a managerial prime minister of the of the rest of the cabinet that is also made up within the actual government itself at the time, rather than a presidential uh, US-style situation, which kind of represents an executive outside and of in itself to the to the House of Representatives and the Senate in the US. No, it's actually it's 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 quite an interesting, almost hybrid. I think Australian democracy sounds between US style and an English parliamentary style. So that's. That's interesting. But yeah, as, as you touched on there, you know, Australia, you've had Scott Morrison, Turnbull, Tony Abbott, Kevin Rudd. You've had a lot of prime ministers in, in a very short period of time. I think, I think all four of them have probably been the last seven years. So why, why do you think there, there has been so much change of prime ministers in recent years? You touched on it a little bit there, but um, yeah, is there, is there anything in particular that's happened now and why it might be happening? Is, is it happening more now than it was maybe 20 years ago or, or what may have changed? Yeah. Can, can, I, can I ask a question of Patrick, Richard, to, to shake things up a little bit, which is a sort of a sub-question to what you've asked. But do, do you have views on, on, on whether this whole revolving door prime ministership thing, do you think that the motivations have been the same when, you know, Labour prime ministers have um, been axed by their own party versus when liberal prime ministers have? Like, is it, is it, does it all just boil down to, you know, self-interested, power-grabbing, politicking, or, or is there some other factor that actually is like a common factor between the Labour prime ministers that have, that have been replaced after very short terms and the liberal prime ministers? Yeah, well, I mean, it's the, it's the $64 million question with Australian politics at the moment, I guess. But, but um, I think... Uh, and certainly this is my opinion on the subject, but I think it's heavily rooted in a, in a, in a situation in Australian politics where you, you see the, the, the governing political body 
losing its its electoral foothold throughout the course of their governorship in a in a, in a term and a, an Australian term just just for your benefit, Richard, and, yeah. and for listeners' benefit, is is three years in in the House of Representatives and six years in the Senate. Okay. So you would you what you typically see is the House of Representatives elected every three years and half of the Senate is elected every three years with the with the following half of that Senate elected in the following three years. And what you see with these um, kind of jockeying for prime ministership is a, is a political party that was elected you know, the, to the new election and one year out from, from the new election, realising that they've kind of lost their political capital. And when they lose their political capital, you, you see rumblings internally within the, within the ministership as well as the broader House of Representatives and Senatorship, jockeying for how best to portray themselves going into the election and how best to differentiate themselves. And we have a, 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 a probably a similar uh, situation in the UK and the US and, and basically every democratic, democratic situation, a, a polling situation which would kind of give you indicators along the line of, you know, as a sample of a sample of the population. Like a news poll. Like a news poll. And they would kind of give you an an opportunity to kind of get into, you know, maybe a thousand Australian voters making up a various distribution among the populace and the electorate, how they were kind of voting for if that prime minister was popular and if those those political organisations were kind of still holding weight. And you see radical changes going into an election to kind of mirror and mask I guess a growing disconnect between the current governorship and how they want to frame themselves for the new election. I think you typically see a lot of changes in the prime ministership, you know, 12 months to six months out from an election in order to um, kind of better frame the party going into that new election and differentiating themselves so that they can kind of make themselves politically relevant going into that new election. Yeah, I think Patrick's right. And I think it's it's not so much, you know, to, to address this question, it's, it's not so much about the, like, uh, the institutional factors and, 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 and kind of how the, um, how the system is structured. I think it's got a lot to do with external factors. And, and obviously, like, in the world we live in today, the sort of feedback loop between, like, social media and, and you know, the, the pressures that um, the pressures that these parties must feel in light of the fact that every single thing that they do is recorded constantly now and is constantly speculated upon. And, and so that kind, of, that kind of environment that obviously you, Richard, would know a lot, lot about because you, you, would have, you would have looked at it um, from different perspectives. I think that environment has, um, our system has been very vulnerable to those changes. And, and so obviously the, in, the intense swings in opinion polls around Certain individuals and and how they um, and 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 how they are liked by the public, given the the, sh- the huge amount of information now available to the public and the constant, you know, the the, the constant um, uh, never-ending uh, news cycle and you know with, with with the addition of social media and all of that has put a lot of pressure on parties or, or at least given them a lot to um, a lot of uh, ammunition to remove leaders, um, whereas maybe in the past. The system wasn't susceptible to that kind of, um, you know, to that kind of thing because because we were, you know, we weren't constantly um, learning about the, you know, the failures of, of, of prime ministers on a minute-to-minute basis with social media. I don't know if that's a fair perspective. Um, I don't know if you have any comments about that. Yeah, I think that's 100% correct. 
and, and what I would also add to that, I guess, is that there's a kind of silver lining to the whole analysis. We are seeing movements by these, particularly the, the Labor Party of recently, um, we saw the, the kind of the merry-go-round between the, the, the Rudd, Gillard, Rudd kind of prime ministership changes over the, in the course of 2007 to, I guess, to the end of 2010. Um, what we've really seen is, is political organisations kind of at least trying to, what the, the, the issue has been recognised and at least steps are trying to be ma um, maintained internally to kind of address that issue. So the, the actual the party membership itself, and, and I guess when I, when I say party membership, I, I, I make a specific distinction between that and the general electorate. The party membership of, of each particular party having a lot more say in when a prime minister can be removed from their office um, ahead of a general election. Um, and I think that's a good thing. But I, I, what I'd add to that is I think one of the nuances of the, of the Australian political system is that, you know, this, this kind of news cycle, um, as opposed to a, a presidential style um, kind of system where, where, where a president is elected for a four-year term um, until they're removed from office either by election or, or, or by re-election and then um, finishing of the terms, um, the the constant news cycle really does play into um, you know that kind of merry-go-round, and I think the political organisations slowly um, are trying to address that. But one will see over the next you know I guess three to five years whether um, significant strides have been made. But I think we're seeing you know at least in the Labor Party uh, at least an inkling to kind of stop that tradition, and, and hopefully after the recent Turnbull Morrison appointment and then the re-election of Morrison in the, in the most recent election, hopefully we'll see the, the fruits of that um, merry-go-round stop because I think it is quite politically disruptive from an opinion perspective. Yeah. Well. And, yeah, and if I can add, sorry, Richard, I know we've, we've, we've riffed on this for a little while now, but I think but, it is so important and I think all of your listeners will obviously be uh, front of mind when you think about Australian politics, obviously the, the revolving law prime ministership issue. So I, I, and one thing I just want to mention as well is um, both of the parties are alike in, in one significant way, which is that, you know, they've become in, increasingly tribal in terms of the, the, the factions within the parties. Right. Um, and actually, that's, that's a common thing. Well, I was, I was going to say that that's obviously we're seeing that more and more throughout the world because obviously the Democrats and Republicans have become... In, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, a lot of people could barely even tell the difference. And now they're, now they're almost like two different species. And I think that's happened similarly with the UK, whereas the Conservatives and Labour used to be very similar. Now, uh, Boris and Jeremy Corbyn, the last election was almost like a Trotskyite versus, versus a very right wing uh, uh, guy. So, like, it's, it's where we are seeing a lot of that uh, tribalizing throughout a lot of the world. So it's not just yeah. Australia. Um, if I could but even in Australia, yeah. Oh, sorry, Richard. Finish that. Finish no, that, no, mate. Sorry. No, no, no. Go, you, you go ahead, there, Mark. All I was, all I was going to add there, mate, is that that the, the tribalism is also within the parties. Is this kind of the point about the revolving door prime ministership issue? Like there, there is a lot of motivation, um, a lot of ideological motivation within the parties themselves about you know certain groups um, that are more on the right side of. Of the LNP coalition, then, then you know, towards centre, wanting to remove, you know, someone like um, Turnbull, who was seen to be centrist and, and not 
not appropriately serving the needs of, of sort of the, the, the far right elements of the party. And, and, and I don't think it would be different um, in, in the labor context either in terms of, you know, the different factions within that, that overall um, ideology, that, that broad church that is the labor party, um, you know, whether it's, it's because of certain interests that are motivated by, you know, you'd, you'd know a bit more about it than me, influence or whatever it may be, but there are a lot of fractions um, in, in, in the party itself in Australia, which, which obviously gives a lot of the, the, the motivation for the kind of theatrical um, axing of prime ministers. Okay, no, that's, that, that's very interesting and I think a pretty good explanation for the, the high level of turnover in, in prime ministers. It somewhat reminds me of when a Premier League manager gets a few bad results and all of a sudden he gets kicked out of the job. Anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. Join myself, Milan and Patrick again next week as we take a closer look at Australia's immigration system, their Aboriginal history and the overall economy. Thanks very much for listening.